What if we started out this morning with a survey and a show of hands of how many of you ate McDonald's this week? We, I'm not going to make you do that. And if, if, even if I did, there is no shame. I read an article years and years ago, and I've talked about it on numerous occasions because there is just really no greater illustration for the point that I'm trying to prove today from the book of Philippians um, than this one. So did you know that when McDonald's introduced French fries to their menu, um, those French fries were cooked in 7% cottonseed oil and 93% beef tallow, which is really just a fancy way of saying beef fat. Yeah, so much so. And, and, and what it meant was that per ounce, the McDonald's French fry actually had more beef content than the McDonald's hamburger. And you're not surprised by that at all. But in an article about what makes McDonald's French fries taste so good, and you, you're kind of tasting it right now, like you're feeling it, like you know exactly what it is. You know that there's probably one underneath the seat of your car that you can find later, and it's going to look exactly like it did three years ago when it fell there. And you're kind of questioning whether or not it might taste exactly the same today as it did that long. I mean, it looks the same. Why not give it a try? So in the 1990s, when everybody got really concerned about, you know, fat intake and saturated this and that and cholesterol, um, McDonald's was faced with a challenge of what they were going to do with their French fries. And so they began cooking them in 100% vegetable oil, which apparently at the time we understood it to be healthier than cooking something in saturated beef fat. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But the taste wasn't as good. And so then they were faced with the additional challenge of making their fries not fried in beef fat, but somehow tasting like they were. And so they released chemists with all of the money that McDonald's has to come up with an artificial or natural flavor. You know, every box, every ingredient, every like processed food that you read has a ton of ingredients listed on the box, and it always ends with natural flavor. So they invented the natural flavor of beef fat in order to season the oil that they were going to fry the french fries in so that we would have that same satisfying flavor when you bit into a McDonald's french fry. Now, incidentally, when I was serving on a church staff in Florida, there was a family in it, and they welcomed an exchange student from Belgium into their home for like her junior year of high school. Her name was Audrey. She was a great girl, and she always laughed and was enamored by the fact that we ordered French fries from all of our American menus because they grow up and were taught. I can't verify this. I don't know if you need to look on the internet later to find out if this is true, but according to Audrey, a high school junior from 14 years ago, she says that they are taught growing up that one of the things that makes Americans so silly is that what World War I soldiers thought they were eating in France, fried potatoes, they were actually marching through Belgium, and what we called French fries really should have been coined Belgium fries. You can order that this afternoon when you go to ML Rose. I prefer the sweet potato variety, but it's going to be good. The challenge for us then is this, that somehow recognizing you and I will never, ever, ever be Jesus, ever, but our lives are called to distinctly taste and look and smell like they are. The McDonald's French fry will never, ever, ever be the McDonald's hamburger. But they had to figure out how to make it taste that way. And to the rest of the world, when they encounter you and I, they should be somehow or another coming in contact with the flavor of, you'll never be Jesus, 
but the world should somehow come in contact with him when they encounter you. So we read these words last week. We repeated them today from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Some of your Bible translations are going to say, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That word attitude in Scripture, that word mindset that you read in some of your Bible translations is really the word phroneo, and it literally means a wise and understanding mind to direct your attention, to strive for something. Like, this is our goal. This is our attitude. This is our hope. This is our dream. This is where our, our mind and our focus is. It comes from the word parin, which literally means midriff. I thought about wearing one of those this morning as an example, but then I decided to do you all a favor and realized that that would have been highly inappropriate. The idea of diaphragm, it's your core. It's everything. Like we're all the time talking about, oh, my heart and my mind. But at the end of the day, there's something that we just believe down deep in our guts that matters. That's the attitude that you want. You'll never be Jesus, but we want to have the flavor and the attitude and the goal and the mindset. We want to have the thought. Our core needs to be that which is of Christ. And so we read words last week in Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 5, going all the way to 11, about the idea of humility and emptying ourselves and being made nothing so that Christ could be glorified. And then we come up with these words, starting in verse 12, and it says, therefore, and anytime you get to the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask, well, what's it therefore? Because Christ was willingly humbled, because Christ willingly emptied himself, because Christ was willing to become a servant and to take on the very nature of a servant, the flavor of a servant, even to be punished by death on a cross. So God highly exalted him for us to live lives that are that humble and that willingly bent towards service so that Christ Jesus can be glorified in us. This is what we're going to do. Paul says, therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. This is super important. If we're doing our Greek vocabulary lesson today, it's it's the word hupakuo. And that idea of obeying literally means to listen or to hear. And I love the fact that in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language, we get pictures of the idea of obedience being inextricably linked to the idea of hearing. You know, in the Old Testament, it says the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That word Shema is the most important word in the Hebrew Jewish language. And they knew that if they heard God, they also obeyed God because there's actually no other word for obey. It's also Shema. Shema pulls double duty and gives us both words because the idea of hearing God has to be linked to the idea of obeying God. That word Shema, it's where we get the names Simeon. It's where we get the name Samuel. It's where Susan and I got the name Simon for our son, that he would not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer instead. And so you come down to the Greek language and you realize that it actually means the exact same thing. This word that we translated into English as obeyed literally also means to listen, to hearken. To be like a guy who heard a knock on the door and who ran to answer it and see who it was. That somehow the words inspire action, our hearing and our obedience are linked. And that's why the Bible is so repetitious over and over and over. To be a good Jewish believer in the Lord meant that if you heard him, you obeyed him. And if you didn't obey him, it meant that you didn't hear him the first time and he's going to have to repeat himself. So now, 
Paul writes to the Philippian church, as you have always obeyed in my presence, now so much more in my absence. And as an parent, that's exactly what our goal is. Our goal is to not just make sure that our kids listen to us and obey us when they're with us, but ultimately because of the shame that it would cost us, we want them to listen and obey when they're not with us. The idea that we're raising kids not just to be, I don't tell my kids this all the time, hey, I'm not looking for you to be a happy teenager. I'm looking for you to one day be a productive Christ-following adult. I'm not concerned with having great kids today. I'm concerned with releasing great adults in the future. And so that's the idea that we don't just follow Christ when we're surrounded by one another, when it's a celebratory thing to do, and when everybody else in the room is also doing it, we follow Jesus Christ even when we're the only one. The true test of a believer in Jesus Christ is not that you follow him when it's easy, but that you follow him when it's hard. The truest test of Jesus' disciples was not making the wise decision and doing the right thing when he was there, but when he left them and they were bound in difficulty of beginning the early church. And so Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers, as you've always obeyed, as you've always somehow figured this out when I was right there with you, now you continue to figure that out. When I'm gone, he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And that's certainly the idea of fear as in awe, this picture of worship. But notice that it says, continue to work out. That's like the first recorded instance of like physical fitness in scripture. We're going to jump out at 530 in the morning and some parking lot somewhere and like get our workout on. No, that's not it. But we do have to note that working out our salvation and working for our salvation are very different. In fact, they're not the same at all. We are not called to work for our salvation, but we are called to work out our salvation. And the reason that we are not called to work for our salvation is because no matter how much work we do, we could never earn our salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 4, says this, but because of his great love... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even while we were dead in our transgressions. And who can't work? Dead people. So even while we were dead and incapable of doing anything to earn our salvation, Christ died for us. And then he says, it is by grace that you have been saved. It's why I publicly, therefore, anybody that ever asked me about any sort of theology, that I'm a born-again proud monergist. The idea of mono meaning one, that there is somehow a method by which my salvation was earned and it was accomplished solely by Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That I didn't come and somehow meet him halfway and somehow my effort would only got me this far and Christ Jesus made up whatever the difference was. He did the whole thing. So this idea of working for my salvation would never work because no matter how much work I do, I could never even earn one step or one ounce of it. It's all about him. But once we are, we continue to flesh out what it means to look like, act like, think like, feel like, respond like in the world the way that Christ would. Paul says, for it is God, in verse 13, who works in you. He does all the work to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The passage of scripture that I memorized, the translation that I got as a kid was that God who works in you to will and act according to his good pleasure. And that's because purpose and pleasure are the same word here for us. And you have to know and we have to come to believe that any purpose that God has 
is going to ultimately bring him the most pleasure. And any purpose that he gives to us in life is ultimately going to reflect that pleasure back to him. Our attitude being that of Christ Jesus is this. The right attitude comes from having the right perspective. Paul explains that. He he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. That warped and crooked generation is a callback to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 when God looked at his people and he says, you guys are in a warped and crooked generation. He says this, they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord? who had rescued them from Egypt, who had rescued them from their captivity, you foolish and unwise people. Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? The right attitude comes from having the right perspective. God alone is creator. God alone is sustainer. God alone is life giver. And he's the reason why we should always do everything that we do without complaining or arguing to become blameless and pure children of God. And it's a perfect reference point. The fact that we're called children here because every single part of the relationship that we have with God, there is one reference after another of him being our holy father. So in Matthew chapter six, it says, hey, don't worry. Don't worry about stuff. Don't worry about what you eat or what you drink or what you will wear. The pagans, the crooked and perverse generation people, they run after all of those things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. The right attitude comes from knowing who God is to us. That idea of a, a crooked and depraved generation or a warped and crooked generation is, is literally the idea of perverse And it means to be turned around, to turn your back on God, to turn away from him. It's facing the other direction for so long that you somehow begin to see this as the right direction. And anything that looks different than your right direction is somehow the wrong way to go. I got to tell you, I don't just believe in God. Somebody just took a big gulp. The pastor's about to be a pluralist. He's about to tell us that there's more than one way to heaven. He's about to tell us that there's more than one way to obtain salvation. No, I'm not. But I don't just believe in God. I believe in the enemy of God. You see, and God alone is creator. He alone is life giver. The enemy does not create anything. The enemy does not give life to anything, but the enemy perverts everything. The enemy does not create anything, but the enemy perverts everything. There's a a picture in Scripture. It's found in several geographical references and stories of the idea of Babylon. It was certainly a nation. It was certainly a people group, and they certainly ransacked the people of God. You can read about it in the book of Daniel, and there's some fantastic stories there. So when you read about Babylon in the Bible, you're definitely reading about uh, geography, but you're also reading about a metaphor of what it means to be a people who are crooked and depraved and very, very far from God. In fact, the final picture that we get of Babylon comes in the book of Revelation, where Babylon is depicted as a whore, um, the spirit of a seductive culture, actively engaged in pursuing people to move in her direction for their destruction. Isaiah chapter 47 gives us the motto of what Babylon is. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. 
your wisdom and your knowledge, they led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is none besides me. If you face that distortion for long enough, you'll start to believe it. And anything that looks the opposite of it is somehow deemed wrong. You see, God alone gets to define for us what love is, but the world and the enemy in it is happy to offer us a distortion, a counterfeit. And if you entertain the distortion and the counterfeit long enough, you will eventually believe that that is the real definition of love and start to look at God's definition as if it's the one in the wrong. God has created and given us a, a gift of truth, a gift of peace, a gift of hope, a gift of joy, a gift of a, a picture of what true tolerance is. And the enemy has been sitting on the sidelines, twisting and perverting every single one of those for so long that you can now go out in pervasive culture, America, and find that we've been looking in the definitions and in the directions of love and peace and joy and patience and tolerance and hope and harmony, looking in the wrong direction for so long that the right looks foreign to us, that the right looks wrong to us. You know, there's only a couple things in life that we can control. You can't control all of culture. You can't control all of circumstances, but you can control your attitude and your effort. Molly Westmoreland is a friend of mine. She's at the Franklin campus, and she's been a partner in ministry for a long time, serving with kids and students, and she's raised three amazing kids of her own, and she has a ministry called Seed Planting Mom, where she coaches moms in raising their kids, and it's fantastic, and she always says, and she raised her kids on this phrase, the only thing that you're responsible for is your attitude and your effort. And so if our attitude is to be flavored and to be seasoned and to smell like the aroma of Jesus Christ, we have to ask ourselves a couple questions like, one, who are you and what are you after? Are you after God's glory and God's word and God's truth and God's perception in this world? Or are you after your own safety, your own ease, your own security, your own satisfaction? Paul goes on to say in these writings that we're not going to just do everything without complaining or arguing so that we become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. For it. it says, then you will shine like stars in the universe. This NIV 2011 says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You know, when, when do stars shine? All the time. They're out there bright shining right now in daylight. But when do you see them? When it's dark. You don't shine the brightest in here. The goal and the call is to shine the brightest out there. Stars don't just shine, they also fall. And when they do, the world is sitting right there ready to not only blame and denounce the Christian and the church, but to ultimately blame and denounce the Christ. And so it's difficult when we go out there and we attempt to live for Jesus and we do what we do and we fail and we fall because the world doesn't just get to see you shine. The world can also witness as you fall 
So, so who are you and, and what are you after? Paul says you shine like a star in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then he says that he will be able to boast on the day of Christ. It's like a humble brag that I did not run or labor in vain. So who are you, God's child? And what are you after, God's glory? And what is it worth? Everything. Everything. And Paul writes, and in verse 17 he says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, an Old Testament sacrifice, a drink offering of wine, on the altar of sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's worth everything. It's worth the whole sacrifice. You know, in our culture and in our day and even in our walk of Christianity, the idea of safety and security has become a respectable idol. The idea of safety and security and planning for the future and looking ahead has become a very respectable idol that nobody can pull you down from and nobody can tear you away from. The idea that, well, we just want to make sure that everything is taken care of and that the people in our bubble are safe and that the people in our lives are secure. But that's not what Scripture ever called us to. We've not been called to pursue our security. We've been called to pursue God's glory. And we can't have that kind of impact while we're taking care of ourselves. Go back to the start of Philippians chapter 2 when we're supposed to value others more. I got the pleasure of listening to at a leadership summit, an online leadership summit a couple of weeks ago, um, a pastor by the name of Nona Jones And in response to the way that our world is right now, and particularly in response to the way our country is right now, she says, injustice is never neutral. You can be not racist and benefit from systems of racism. And it's safe and secure to say, I'm not a racist. But it's risky to be anti-racism. And to realize that it might cost you something in the process. She says, you cannot make a lasting impact while you are feeling safe. Safety and impact are greatly opposed. But if you head in the direction of the distortion long enough, you may not recognize the real thing. And so the Bible offers us these pictures because I'm a visual learner. You may be a visual learner. Like, I, just, I need to see an, an example of this. Well, Paul gives us four. The first was last week when we talked about Jesus, the idea of what it means to make, be humble and to make a sacrifice. We don't have to go any further than Jesus. If we want to look for a picture of Philippians chapter 2, uh, uh, verses uh, 3 and 4, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, if we want to look for a picture of somebody in humility who considered others as more important than themselves. If we want to look at a picture of humility of somebody who looks not to their own interests but to the interest of others, then we don't have to go any further than Jesus. If we want to look for a picture of Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 14, do everything without complaining or arguing, we don't have to go any further than Jesus because that's what he did. He took on the humble nature of service and he made the ultimate sacrifice. We read in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Somehow or another, it was for joy that Christ made that kind of 
humble sacrifice. So we don't have to look any further than Jesus himself to get the best picture of what it means to be humble service. But you say, well, I'll never be like Jesus. Well, then he gives us himself as an example. Paul, he's an example. Paul was a man who received the word of God. In the book of Acts chapter nine, Jesus said this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Literally, the call of Paul on a road to Damascus included the words, I'm gonna show you how much it's gonna hurt to follow Jesus. That would have been my first clue to get the heck out of Dodge and not go that direction. If he tells you right on the outset, hey, I want you to follow me, but it's going to hurt, that's your clue to go out the other door. But that's not what Paul did in this moment because we know that he says in Colossians chapter one, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That somehow he was celebrating the fact that he had to suffer for the sake of people that got to come to know Jesus. That's why he said, hey, I don't care if I have to be poured all the way out like a drink offering, I will rejoice because Paul also said that to live was Christ, but to die is gain. Paul wrote that we as the church should share in the sufferings of Christ and that we somehow make those sufferings complete by our willingness to be like Jesus, look like Jesus, smell like Jesus, taste like Jesus, humble ourselves like Jesus and make sacrifices so that others can come to know Jesus. We've got the pictures in here painted for us. If we want to know what it's like to live a life of humble service, if we want to know what it's like to make the ultimate sacrifice, we can look to Jesus, we can look to Paul, but then he goes on to give us Timothy and Epaphroditus too. About Timothy, he says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive good news about you. He says in verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. So Philippians chapter 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. You want a picture of what that looks like? Look at Timothy because he apparently valued others as better than himself. Who in your life is a Timothy? Who would you commend to the rest of us? Who would you nominate for the senior superlative of most humble person in the graduating class of Rolling Hills Community Church, Nashville campus, or your own family? Who do you have that there is no one like in your life because they are so humble and consider your needs and everybody else's needs as above their own? And whose list would you be on? Whose nomination ballot under humility would have your name? Is there anybody out there that could say, man, I sure do want to commend to you, my friend, fill in the blank. I don't have anybody else like him. Nobody else like them who considers others as better than themselves. And Epaphroditus Paul wanted to send him back in verse 25. He says, I think it's necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, my coworker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. You sent me, Epaphroditus. Well, I'm gonna send him back to you. Why, verse 30? Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life 
to make up for the help you yourselves could not. Like the, all of the Philippians couldn't go and minister to Paul, so they sent Epaphroditus in their place, and then he wants to send them back because Epaphroditus was willing to die for the cause of Christ. You want a picture of what it means to live your life in humble service, considering others way better than yourselves, even to the point of being willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of your life. Scripture gives us four of them. The idea that we might live this way it is what the essence of the attitude of Christ really is. Last week we talked about the idea of if-then faith. Therefore, if you have received in verse 1 any encouragement, any compassion, any love, any tenderness, if following Jesus is good, then make my joy complete by being like-minded being unified, having the same attitude that was found in Christ Jesus. If we're going to have this if-then faith, here's what we understand, that this kind of if-then faith is ultimately a free gift with a very high cost. I was in student ministry with middle school, high school kids for years, and I used to say on many an occasion that trusting Christ for salvation is easy. What, somebody about to die in my place? Sign me up. Forgiveness is free? Yes, put my name on that list. That part, easy. But following Christ is hard. I would say, I don't want to make you confused. I don't want to set you up for failure in the future. I want to tell you straight up that living your life according to the words that are found in this book, according to the truths that are found in this book, it will cost you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you energy. It'll cost you relationships. It'll cost you fame. It may cost you money. It will cost you in life to follow Jesus. You don't work for your salvation, but you work it out once you get it. And it's a daily figuring out how to live like Jesus. Becoming a Christian is easy, but being one is hard and probably getting harder, maybe every day, maybe with every passing year, maybe with every passing moment. I saw a funny meme this week, and it was about numbers. It's like all the numbers got together, and they were trying to brag and say, I'm the worst number. No, I'm the worst number. And number 13, you know, that's kind of an unlucky one. He says, I'm the worst number, 13. And then number 666, now that one's a scary one, right? Number 666 says, no, I'm the worst number. I got you beat. And then the number 2020 just said, insert evil laugh. (laughs) It does in some ways feel like it's getting harder to follow Christ, to represent Christ, to smell and taste like Jesus. The mind of Christ, that was easier back in pioneer days, right? (laughs) That was easier 20, 30 years ago. Maybe, I don't know. But we were never promised that it would be easy. We do understand that it's worth it. I wrote this down and I make it a first person and and, kind of say it about myself. Maybe it would be, I'd probably be better off if I said it out loud every every minute. No, every day, every week. I used to say to students, um, it was in their, their conduct code. Whenever we would go to camp, we would say that there was no complaining at camp. No complaining. Um, well, what, what are you going to do? Well, well, you are not Jesus. You did not suffer and die on the cruel cross for the sins of a fallen world. Therefore, you have no reason to complain. 
And kids would come in, Pastor Nick, I don't like the dinner in the cafeteria. And I would say, you are not Jesus. You did not suffer and die for the sins of fallen humanity on a cruel cross. Therefore, you have no reason to complain. Pastor Nick, I forgot my towel. Well, you are not Jesus. You did not suffer and die on a cruel cross for the sins of a fallen world. Therefore, you have no reason to complain. Nick Allen, you are not God. You, you did not form the earth in under a week. You do not keep the planet spinning on its axis, nor do you hold the components of all life in your hands. You did not offer mankind which you created, your only son, as a sacrifice to atone for its wicked sin. And I got to tell you, church, I love you, but if, if your salvation depended on me sacrificing my kid, you're out of luck. I couldn't do it. Nick Allen, you do not single-handedly hold the keys to joy and peace and hope and purpose. Nick Allen, God loves you with an everlasting love in spite of your sin and rebellion. And regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your culture, regardless of your difficulty, regardless of your challenges, when your focus is on Jesus, when your perspective is about the cross, you have no reason to complain. The problem is when I'm staring at my life and my wickedness and my circumstance and my perception for so long, I see it as the standard and think that God's word is the wrong exception. That's the perspective I need. Nick Allen, you can confidently and sacrificially follow Jesus Christ because you know that it's best for you and your family and the world around you. Nick Allen, you can declare the lordship of Jesus and submit yourself to him whatever it costs, no matter the sacrifice, because Jesus Christ can be trusted and your life is far better in his will than striving for your own control outside of it. Following God's word and Christ's example, your attitude can be humble and your effort can be all out sacrificial. His holy name be praised. And whenever this is your decided declaration, your problems will not go away. They may only magnify, but your perspective will be clear and they will not overtake you. Therefore, my dear friends, Paul writes to us as friends. I want to give you some good advice. I want to tell you how to, how to live your life and how to honor him. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed in my presence and now so much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with worship. Awe-filled fear and trembling worship. Not for it, but working it out of your life so that other people see it. Because it's ultimately God who works in you to will and act according to His good purpose, for His good pleasure. Everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, of your own Father.
who are blameless and pure, without fault, and a crooked and depraved, a wretched generation. Man, the days are evil. In which you shine like a star in the universe. That's how you smell like Jesus. It's how you taste. You will never be him. You will never be called to do what he did or to give what he gave. But because he did what he did and because he gave what he gave, we can live out our lives in holy pursuit of that gut level. Give it to me. I gotta have it. I gotta face that direction. To where when the rest of the world looks at you and sees you and interacts with you, they somehow get a picture of how much God loves them. So when we go, we go without complaining or arguing so that people can see Jesus. We go considering other people as better than ourselves so that they can see Jesus. We go out willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, being poured out and spent, regardless of our safety, regardless of our security, regardless of what it costs us, so that people can see Jesus. Because it's only ever always about him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to to say these words out loud and to know that this scripture is clear and to trust you with our lives. Father, our prayer is that somehow or another, through the reading and the hearing, not just hearing but obeying of this word, that somehow the Holy Spirit of God has done a unique work in this place revealing to us areas of our lives that are out of step, revealing to us areas of our lives where we have pursued our own agendas instead of pursuing that of Christ, revealing to us areas of our lives where our attitude needs to be more in step with who Jesus is, humility and sacrifice. And God, would you reveal to us the areas of life where we need to be more humble and where we need to risk it all so that in encountering us, people ultimately get a taste of you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.